One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sometimes jailing a criminal nurse or a doctor or a surgeon isn't enough. You may have removed the criminal, but what about the system that allowed them to operate or that didn't protect patients enough? We've all been discussing Lucy Letby recently, but rewind a bit. What about surgeon Ian Patterson? Ian Patterson was jailed for 20 years in 2017 for carrying out unnecessary and unsafe operations. Ian Patterson often invented or exaggerated the risks of cancer and performed operations that were never needed, including mastectomies, breast removal. His work in private hospitals blew up into an almighty scandal with many questions unanswered. An inquiry was quickly launched. Well, good morning and uh, thank you all for being here. I've just come from a gathering of patients who gave evidence to the inquiry and their relatives and supporters. And it was... The Right Reverend Graham James, former Lord Bishop of Norwich, led it and in 2020 found that this wasn't just a case of one monster. It was bigger than that. It's the story of a healthcare system which proved itself dysfunctional at almost every level when it came to keeping patients safe. I have made 15 recommendations to empower and protect patients. And if the private healthcare sector does not implement recommendations which become part of NHS practice, we believe that NHS funded treatment in private hospitals should no longer be allowed. Patients should not be less safe in one part of the healthcare system than they are in another. The Sunday Times has found that not only have many of Graham James's recommendations not been implemented, but unnecessary surgeries in private hospitals are being carried out every year, still. As more and more NHS patients are being sent into private care to ease the eye-wateringly long waiting lists, there's one question that should concern us all. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Luke Jones. Today, can you trust private hospitals? I'm Sean Linton, health editor at the Sunday Times. 
And before we get into some of the things that you've uncovered in this reporting, just take us back to Ian Patterson, the surgeon, and what he was found to have done. Yeah, so Ian Patterson was a surgeon working in the West Midlands and he was ultimately sent to prison for 20 years for carrying out surgery on patients when they didn't need it. He was largely a breast surgeon in the West Midlands operating on women and men who he told them they had cancer when in fact they didn't. During the trial, the jury heard a succession of patients describe a pattern of behaviour, how Ian Patterson told them they were at risk of cancer, had pre-cancerous cells and needed to have lumps or entire breasts removed. But expert witnesses told the court the risk was non-existent or greatly exaggerated and that no reasonable surgeon would have acted in the way Ian Patterson did. And in fact, we now know that he operated on hundreds of patients and harmed many of them. Millions of pounds in compensation has been paid to his victims. And when he was really discovered and this all blew up several years ago, he was sentenced in 2017. You know, a lot of people at that point were very concerned about what he'd been able to achieve and how he'd lacked the kind of scrutiny and oversight mm. that people thought would have been standard really and that's where we started to get calls for investigations and an inquiry and then in 2020 we had the results of the inquiry into Ian Patterson and that really did raise very serious questions about how doctors and surgeons like him are operating in the private sector to what level of oversight and scrutiny they're under. And the rub in this, as you mentioned, is the fact that he was working in private hospitals. And that situation, it isn't something that just affects people with private insurance who would only ever go to a private hospital for care. It could affect all of us, even people who are exclusively on the face of NHS patients. Yeah, and even more so today as well. So right now with... Remember, we've got waiting lists of 7, 7.6 million patients on the NHS. The government has openly said a lot of those patients will be referred into the private sector to try and reduce those waits. And I think that's where people don't quite realise that they are being sent into a system that actually operates very differently to mm -hmm. the National Health Service. So, so the situation is that even if you're an NHS patient, you can find yourself in a private hospital, which makes this question of can you trust private hospitals, I guess a really crucial one for many of us, whether or not we have private insurance. You mentioned the inquiry into Ian Patterson there. What did that actually recommend and were those recommendations taken up? The inquiry was published in 2020 and the chairman of the inquiry, Graham James, he made a number of recommendations that were designed to really close the loopholes that Ian Patterson exploited. And this includes things like operating under what's known as practicing privileges, where the consultant almost effectively rents a room from the private hospital. They're not an employee. And so they don't have the same sort of oversight as an employee would. And the private hospital companies can kind of avoid liability if something goes wrong. He also made recommendations about insurance and ensuring that patients could be protected and if something goes wrong, get compensation. But unfortunately, here we are years later and some of those recommendations have still not been acted on. And, and I spoke to Graham James for this investigation and he was quite clear to me. He said the majority of the recommendations of the Patterson inquiry 
have been agreed in principle by the government, but even allowing for the pandemic, it is disappointing mm. that more have not been fully implemented. And to that effect, it is still the case that, what, unnecessary surgeries are, are still happening in, in private hospitals? What have you been able to find? Yeah, so that's been one of the key areas I wanted to investigate. And I'm afraid we found some quite shocking information there because you know it's difficult to get data on purely private patients that doesn't really exist or it's not easily accessible but we are able to get data on what happens to fully funded NHS patients who are sent in to private hospitals and what we found was that in the four years to March 2022 almost 800 NHS patients who were treated privately brought claims for negligence that cost the NHS more than 54 million pounds the largest category of claims with around 210 cases were for patients who'd had surgery that was later found to be completely unnecessary. So 210 cases of that costing the NHS more than £10 million and compensation. And I think that's that's quite shocking there. You know, we, we can show hundreds of patients being given treatments and surgery that they didn't need. I was under the care of a gastroenterologist uh, for some time and really uh, he exhausted all avenues and then referred me to a consultant in the Spire, Bristol, who suggested that he can make me quite well and very better and I could be up and running not much after this operation, which I trusted. So we spoke to a lady called Jennifer Hill, who's a patient of a surgeon in Bristol, Tony Dixon. He was sacked in June 2019 and NHS inquiries found that he may be implicated in the harm of more than 200 cases and Spire Healthcare in Bristol is still investigating him. Jennifer has had long-term problems with chronic irritable bowel syndrome and she was told that Dixon was the surgeon to go to for help. And it was around installing and, and inserting pelvic mesh inside her to help her with some of these problems. And Jennifer told us that initially Dixon was quite blasé about it all. He didn't set out the risks, really, that there is around mesh to her. She she sort of went into this without being fully informed. No questions asked. I didn't research anything. I didn't research him. I just literally just believed in him and trusted him. They paid £5,000 for surgery at Spire in Bristol. And when she'd had the operation, the symptoms that she suffered got a lot worse. So she had distended stomach, diarrhoea, constipation and, and really severe pain. And she saw Dixon again. He did some diagnostic tests and then he gave me the bad news that my colon was dead and it needed to be removed. He decided to operate again and he'd removed her colon. I didn't expect that. And um, again, hindsight's a wonderful thing. I ought to have um, challenged that and asked for more evidence. She is convinced and she's been told subsequently by other clinicians that that, that was absolutely unnecessary surgery and she should never have had it. He also replaced the original mesh 
with a different version. And again, she did not consent to that and it's pretty clear that that shouldn't have happened. And years on, unfortunately, she has suffered terribly. My bowels don't work. It's very, very difficult. I've got a very poor diet, a very poor diet. Um, I have to pre-order food. I have to take food with me. I can't go on an aircraft because obviously you can't cater for my diet. Um, it's damaged part of your body anatomy so you can't have any sexual relationships yeah it's taken away my life it's taken away my rights to have a healthy reasonably healthy life and as a woman and as a wife I feel that's all been taken away from me and when she tried to complain to Spire the company dismissed her originally and sort of sent her back to Dixon to deal with because as with Patterson he operated under this strange system called practicing privileges where he's not really an employee of the hospital he's almost just a contractor renting out a room At the moment we think with Tony Dixon more than 370 women uh, have been reviewed by the NHS and Spire a majority of them have been told that their care was substandard Dixon is facing an investigation by the General Medical Council which is due to start this week I did reach out to Tony Dixon to see if he'd want to talk about this and unfortunately he declined to comment citing patient confidentiality So Sean if you've reported on how this has happened in the past, how this is still happening to a certain extent for many patients. What about the question of how people go about righting these wrongs and actually getting compensation? Yeah, exactly. When something goes wrong, people deserve to have investigations and they deserve compensation ultimately for negligence. And I really wanted to look at that side of the equation as well. And so we looked at the rules around compensation, the rules around insurance. And to be honest, it opened a real can of worms that I hadn't expected and some quite shocking findings that I, I think most people would just be aghast at. Coming up, why some are finding it impossible to get justice when things go wrong in private hospitals. That's after this break. 
awful situation whereby patients referred into private care have in some instances had surgery, had treatment which has gone badly and, and after the fact in many cases they've been told you didn't need that. For people who find themselves in that situation, we heard from Jennifer earlier on, but in terms of others, what do they do next in trying to actually claim compensation for that? Yeah, we're all familiar with the stories of NHS compensation and quite rightly people expect if they're harmed and something goes wrong that they're able to seek some form of justice and recompense. Actually, what I've discovered is that in some cases, private patients can be denied even a penny, even where they have a ruling that they were treated badly and a a judge has ordered payment, that it is still possible not to receive a single penny of compensation. And that's what happened to Clive Worthington, whose daughter Gina we spoke to, and unfortunately a very tragic tale. What happened to Clive? So Clive Worthington was a dental patient, and as his daughter Gina told me, he'd struggled with dental problems for a long time. He'd had dentures, but he found them really uncomfortable, so eventually he decided to get dental implants. He decided to use a small amount of savings that he he had to get implants done in the hope that that would solve his issues. But unfortunately, the dental implant surgery, which he'd paid for privately, it didn't go well. It went wrong really from the start. They'd actually put in the wrong number of implants. It was causing him nerve pain. They were misaligned. There was like a whole list of things. And as time went on, they were beginning to break out and all sorts. But the main thing was he was in discomfort. He was in a lot of pain with it. So Clive eventually filed for compensation and he took the dentist to court. And he won. Uh, The court awarded him £117,000 in compensation against the dentist. He'd paid thousands and thousands of pounds in order to um, have an expert report that he relied on in court. So he'd paid out money on top of what he'd already paid to the dentist for for the work done. Um, But obviously he was pleased that finally he felt there'd been some justice and that with that money that had been awarded him, he would be able to afford to have the remedial work done that would potentially get him out of the pain that he's been in all this time. And then he waits to get the money and it never comes. Even though he had that judgment, the insurers for the dentist were able to exercise something that is called discretionary insurance cover, and that is, as the name suggests, entirely discretionary on their part. So despite the judgment in Clive's favour, the insurance company just literally walked away. And the General Dental Council, the regulator for dentists, actually found this dentist guilty of misconduct in 2019. And despite all of that, Clive never received a penny. The General Dental Council itself has called on the government to toughen insurance requirements. And that was, as we mentioned earlier, a recommendation from the Patterson inquiry as well. Mm. It still hasn't 
being done. And Gina said to me, and it stuck in my mind really, she said, you know, a patient could be sitting in the dentist chair right now and essentially be uninsured and not even realise it. And I think that's quite frightening. And I don't understand though how that can be the case, that the insurance can be discretionary. Well, unfortunately, with clinical negligence and compensation, it comes down to money. That's ultimately the only way you can ever really get justice as such. And so somebody has to write the cheque. And in some of these cases, these insurers are, they're almost effectively, as with Clive Worthington's case, a a kind of insurance protection society. You know, there are different organisations that are created in this sense. And they insure to a certain level. And I think one of the problems is there is no requirement on clinicians to have a set level of compensation. So you can hit a a threshold that is effectively too much for the insurer and they will just literally activate their discretion and turn their back on the patients. And I think in modern day Britain, a lot Mm. of people will struggle with how can this possibly be the system that we've got? But this is absolutely what we're left with. And so you can even have the situation where you have someone like Clive Worthington who has dangerous surgery, court has found that to be the case, compensation is due and yet the insurance company can get out of it for whatever reason. And this isn't just dentistry as well. It goes even further beyond that. No, I think that's important to say Clive is an example of something that affects the whole private healthcare sector. So it isn't just dentistry. But yes, in in his case, the insurer, the Dental Defence Union, they exercised this option to withdraw cover of the dentist and they walked away. It's actually never explained why it made that decision, much to the, you know, causing further grief to Mm. Clive's family as well. Dad, um, in nearly exactly a year ago, um, took his own life. When he did it, he left um, on the table a a note and he'd put, um, you know, deliberate things on that table. There were photos of of our last holidays together, of my wedding, of of my brother of little toys to represent mine and Jim's children, his grandchildren. And there was also one folder which contained a load of stuff to do with his teeth. And on that label, he'd just simply written, um, the nerve pain is unbearable. And I don't think it's any accident that he'd left that on, you know, on that table. And he'd written um, just on a note, he'd written, I'm at peace now. So obviously it was absolutely tragic, but I can... In some ways, I can understand because if somebody's in that much pain and knows that nobody can help them, then, you know, it's not completely ununderstandable that that you would do something like that to just kind of free yourself from it. If there's no insurer to pursue and there's no individual that you can get the money from, you are left in a situation where you can't get justice. And I think it uh, is terrible. You mentioned practicing privileges a little bit earlier on in this context. Just explain what that is and how that fits into the problem. Yeah, so practicing privileges is effectively the consultant is working in the private hospital. They're operating on patients who've come to that hospital thinking it's, you know, it's part of a group, like, for example, Spire Healthcare, where Ian Patterson worked. But in reality, what those consultants are is effectively sole 
contractors. They rent an operating theatre space from that company, Spire, for example, and they will receive the money and do the operation and they pay a set amount of cash to the company. And it's a kind of an arrangement as opposed to being an employee-employer relationship. And that brings with it lots of freedom for the consultants, but also a, really, I think, a question over oversight and who's checking what they're doing, who's checking how they're working. And this was certainly the case with Ian Patterson. It's still happening today, although private hospitals have tried to make improvements to the way they manage consultants now in the wake of the Ian Patterson scandal. But ultimately, practicing privileges is still a thing and it's still there. And you know, many patients, when they go into a private hospital, do they really understand what that is? And do they really understand that if something goes wrong, they may not have anyone to appeal to and anyone to complain to? So you've explained the issue with a potential loophole in insurance if things go wrong. There's also the issue of, of practising privileges, which means that the hospitals can say nothing to do with us if something goes wrong with, with the surgeons that, that work within their walls. What about the sort of wider problem here? Is there something structurally wrong which you think allows this to happen, incentivizes this to happen? How big an issue is this? Yeah, so I think that that's a great question because what we are talking about here is a systemic problem, I think. Ian Patterson is often described as a rogue, but how many rogues do you have to have before you realise it is a system problem? And we know, for example, that there is financial incentives in private healthcare. The think tank, the Centre for Health and Public Interest, has looked at some of the financial interests that consultants have and that this is the, the shares and stakes they might have in device companies or scanning diagnostic companies, etc. And, and they found more than 600 consultants who had shares or stakes in hospitals that they were sending patients to. So just if I can explain this, that you would mm. have a patient who maybe needs a scan for something and the consultant will send them to the machine that they have a stake in and they'll be getting you know, a financial benefit effectively from sending that patient there. Now, the patient may need that, but isn't it tempting to send the patient for a scan when they might not need it? And there are examples of consultants doing that. The General Medical Council has had cases where they have struck off doctors in the private sector for, for example, telling patients that their children have cancer and sending them for scans that they did not need and those children didn't have cancer. That, that is just one example that we've come across. So those, those are the kinds of incentives that you're dealing with. In some cases, the CHPI think tank found 77 doctors received a fee each time the equipment they owned was used for treating or diagnosing a patient. So you can see there how you know, it, it doesn't take much for the financial motive to start creeping yeah. in here, but there doesn't seem to be much in the way of the system mitigating those kinds of risks and motives. What, what about the system pushing for some kind of overhaul then, if not mitigation? There must be someone driving reform somewhere. Because, I mean, even for the private hospitals, this isn't a good look, is it? No, it's definitely not a good look for private hospitals. I did speak to Spire Healthcare and they were very keen to stress that their their approach has changed significantly since the time that Ian Patterson 
was practicing and harming patients. And they say 98% of the group's hospitals and clinics are now rated good or outstanding and that it's brought in real changes to their governance and safety infrastructure to try and spot concerns early. They're not the only hospital group, of course, and the Independent Healthcare Providers Network, which effectively speaks for around 100 different private providers, they said that there is now new frameworks in place to govern consultants working in private hospitals and you know it's very much designed to try and catch the next Ian Patterson and they say that that's led to a 30% increase in private hospitals being rated good or outstanding by the Care Quality Commission and that's you know roughly 9 and 10 are now at that level so they were very keen to stress to me that poor care is bad business at the end of the day and they really need to improve on these things and they recognize that they've got to do more. I also reached out to the Department for Health and, you know, it's their policy to send thousands of patients into the private sector. And so we do know that the Department for Health is still working on responding to the Patterson Inquiry's recommendations, which touches on a lot of what my investigation's been revealing. Uh, The government have yet to come back with real firm proposals on a lot of that. That's uh, still an open question. Clearly, they would say that patient safety is a top priority and that professionals and the companies have to do more to improve that and provide information to patients around consent and the data, etc. But I think what our investigation shows is that there are still examples of things going wrong, too many of them. And I think when you've got a government that is openly sending patients into that system... We have to be thinking more, what can we do to make this safer? And we know, we hear ad nauseum, the problems within NHS provision, the weights, the understaffing, worries about quality of care and the rest. But if this is happening as well over the way in private provision, do you think the system can be trusted? Should we all be worried? So as a health journalist, I know and write about when things go wrong and I can fully understand why people might feel quite worried and scared from listening to this podcast today. You know, Let's be clear, most people in healthcare, whether public or private, are there for the right reasons. What I think our investigation is showing is that there are, though, some people, and this, this exists in all walks of life, doesn't it? There are some people who are there doing things that that are in their own interests and not the interests of the patients. So it is a concern. It is something to be worried about. It is something that you should want the government to be acting on. And it's something to be aware of as a patient. If you're referred into the private sector, you need to be asking questions, make sure you're really informed about the procedures that you're getting, that you really need them. Are you asking questions about the insurance and the insurance level that the consultant has got? And ultimately, I think this is going to come down to doctors and companies themselves are going to have to get a grip of this because public confidence in our private healthcare system could be rocked to the core if we have any more examples of of rogue surgeons. And sadly, I think those will come. We know that the system is there and it hasn't been changed enough. So go back to the Patterson inquiry and what Graham James, the chairman, said, you know, he is disappointed more hasn't been done to make action on his recommendations. And I think until that's really done, we can't be 100% comfortable with the system as it is today.
You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. With me, Luke Jones, and my guest health editor for The Sunday Times, Sean Linton. If you're a subscriber, you can follow all of Sean's incredible reporting, including on the case of Lucy Letby, at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. This episode was produced by Taryn Siegel. The executive producers are James Shield and Kate Ford, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised today, we have put the numbers for some helplines that can offer support in the description of this episode. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.